Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. On this episode of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, I am delighted, absolutely delighted to be joined by Ashley James. Now, uh, many of you will know Ashley from being on the TV. She was in Made in Chelsea. She then presented on The Clothes Show. Uh, She was a presenter on X Factor. She's done Celebrity Big Brother. So lots of TV. But you may also know that she's a DJ and she tours the world DJing now. But more than that, she's a coach. Uh, Her story is amazing how she got to do all the things she's uh, doing. And she is a great exponent of happiness uh, at work and a whole host of other things. So, Ashley, uh, it's wonderful to interview you here uh, in the Silver Room at the Goring. Um, And we're going to have this chat over breakfast, so um, people might hear the knives and forks clinking as um, uh, we enjoy breakfast here. But welcome, it's great to see you. Thank you. I'd like to take you everywhere to do my introductions. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) If I had the time, I'd be delighted to do it. Um, So let's... Let's start with you uh, as a young girl. Yeah. Uh, living on a farm. Yeah. In the northeast, did you ever think then that you would be on the TV, that you would be DJing? Um, I think I thought I'd be a pop star, <laughs> but no. In all seriousness, I grew up in well, a village and then a small town, so I actually didn't really even know that it was possible to be doing the career I'm doing now, so it is very surreal when you look back, Um, but I'm still gutted that I'm not a pop star. So who who was the pop star that inspired you? (laughs) This is is very embarrassing to say, but I think probably Hanson, who I don't know if you're even aware of who they are. Yeah, big Hanson fan, I see. Yeah. Um, I'm ashamed to say I've got that on my um, <laughs> my iPod. Is it a very happy song? Yeah, it is a happy song. <laughs> so, um, so you were singing in your bedroom along to Hanson, um, and then you got your first DJing gig at the age of sixteen on um, local radio. Yes, yeah, so it was a radio. It was less DJing and more um, making cups of tea, and then eventually getting to do little vox pops out and about in Carlisle. Like we did a lot of very hard hitting. Uh, issues like asking about the price of school uniform and the price of Cumberland sausages and then um, I was just very very opinionated which they quite liked so eventually they gave me a tiny little slot on the lunch hour where I'd um, get to talk about whatever it was so I discussed the smoking ban and um, I think when you're young you're almost like ignorant in your like conviction of speaking about your opinions Um, 
so that's kind of how it um, began. But to be honest, I wouldn't even have got that opportunity if it hadn't been, I think, for the fact that um, I won a scholarship when I was six to a boarding school up north and I met this amazing teacher um, who kind of like mentored me. I think he saw that I just didn't fit in really because, um, you know, I was this working class northern girl suddenly surrounded with by amazing people but like just from very different backgrounds and um, I think the teachers were always very keen to point out that you know where I'm from that wasn't that you know you don't behave like that and he kind of took me under his wing and gave me the confidence to pursue what I wanted to pursue and then so I just used to stand outside BBC Radio Cumbria in school holidays until I think they eventually got so fed up of me asking every single person, do you work here? Can I have a job? Do you work here? Can I have a job? So eventually they were like, do you want to make tea and coffee? I was like, I'd love to. And then, yeah, it kind of um, went from there, really. So you clearly had amazing persistence, even at a young age. Um, yeah, I think annoyingly so. I've always been a bit... Um, I've always decided I want to do something, and I've done it, whether that's been a good or a bad thing. Even growing up on a dairy farm, I remember almost drowning when I was about three because every morning my dad would go to, into the milk tanker and get a jug for milk for breakfast. So I decided at three that I was independent enough to get my own milk and provide for the family. So I tried to do it and I fell in. But luckily my dad heard me splashing around. But he was very cross <laughs> that uh, he couldn't sell the milk that day. <laughs> but um, yes, I think I've always kind of known what I wanted to do, whether that's a good or a bad thing. Tell us a little about boarding school, because that must have been a real change uh, for your home life. So what was it like going to boarding school? How did you find it? Do you know what? There's like amazing memories of it and also some like harder memories of it. But I think um, it's so funny, because obviously I was so young. I think I was six when I got accepted and six or seven when I started. And I remember saying to my friends at home, like, oh, I'm an, arist I'm an aristocrat now. Because um, we had like, a, my parents have a, a guest house, a bed and breakfast, and um, there was like a, a four poster bed. And to me, that was like, I'd only seen it in, you know, like Disney films, the princess would always be in a four poster bed. So I said to everyone, oh, I'm an aristocrat, an aristocrat, and I have, and I have a three poster bed. <laughs> so my mum, my mum got home one day and she said, Ashley, you need to stop telling people. Um, but obviously that wasn't the case. I think it was actually quite hard going to school and me thinking that I was suddenly a, like royalty and actually being like put in my box very quickly. And I did, like looking back, there was always kind of this identity battle that at school I was always told that you should do one thing, but then at home I was told that that wasn't normal and you should do the other thing. So I definitely kind of had this identity crisis of like not quite fitting in in either space but it was amazing in terms of like the opportunities that were presented to me in terms of like getting to do things like the Duke of Edinburgh and um, yeah the scrambled egg and smoked salmon has just arrived in front of Ashley very happy Ashley <laughs> um yeah I think I think I feel really lucky looking back that I did have that I, I feel like I'm a, a very like empathetic person because I've I've hung out in um, with different groups of people and like have a good understanding of different groups. So I definitely think it was like an amazing thing. And, and were you happy at school? I would say that I was definitely happy at my prep school. So up until about um, 12. And then I was actually forced to go to a school that I really didn't want to go to for a year, um, where the Brontes 
went um, up in the lakes and that was I it sounds silly but I guess as a child you don't really think about like the money aspect and I think for my parents that was really hard because I just wanted to go to the schools that all my friends were going but they were much more expensive or down south so I ended up going to really the only school that they could afford and I was offered a full scholarship um, but I at the age of 13 been sent to an all-girls school where they weren't particularly sporty especially as someone that was incredibly sporty and that was really hard and then I went to um, my brother's school they started taking girls at 14 so there were 500 boys and 37 girls which sounds like a teenage bliss but it's actually, it was quite like an intimidating environment to go into, especially because a lot of the guys really didn't want girls to ruin their traditions and the atmosphere. So it was quite, I'd say, quite a brutal, misogynistic, um, like, interesting experience. But I think from any negative experience, there's also a lot of positives. And like I said, the teacher that, like, mentored me and... Um, I think even though I, I struggled and I guess I was bullied to a certain extent by both pupils and teachers, I I also don't regret it because I feel like from any negative experience you can also take a lot of positives and learn a lot of skills which have helped me in later life. I'm going to ask you one more question then then um, I'll give you some time to eat your smoked salmon and scrambled egg if that's okay. Um, so you've been described as a feminist. Do you think that... Um, I don't know if you describe yourself as a feminist. I would say yes, but I think the the term feminist gets thrown around a lot and maybe misconstrued, and perhaps it's like a negative connotation to feminist. So that's my question. So my question is: Did your feeling about uh, women, uh, women's place in the world, your place in the world, was that formed by going to that school at fourteen and being surrounded by? 500 odd boys and there were 37 of you who were girls fighting your own way through the school? Um, I suppose to an extent and I definitely remember when I was 14 it was at the time that um, Christina Aguilera's album I think it was called Stripped came out and it was this very empowering album and a lot of it was um, talking about slut shaming and that was a really big thing in our school to the extent that if you held hands with a boy you'd be slut shamed like quite aggressively as well you know you'd have like the first 15 rugby team like shooting you down, which when you're 14 is like quite a horrific experience. So I do remember that was kind of my first experience of like Christine Aguilera being like, yeah, she's amazing and we should have equality when it comes to the way we treat like different genders and sex. And I think my school, probably because they were so terrified about girls coming in and having like a pregnancy scare or something, they really amplified that there was a six inch rule so we weren't allowed within six inches of the opposite sex and they I actually once got detention for hugging my brother because they argued that people from outside wouldn't know he was my brother and what would they think to see me canoodling with um, someone from the opposite sex so I think it, and the thing is I got detention he didn't so there was very much that sentiment that it was the women's fault it was never you know the men were almost encouraged and boys will be boys but it was the women's fault but I think in terms of feminism, I don't think you even have to have bad experiences to just want your daughters or yourself to earn the same as a man and to have the same opportunities. Um, and I'm, I'm good friends with Anne Widdicombe off the back of our stint in Celebrity Big Brother, and I find it fascinating arguing feminism with her because she's such a strong believer that she did not get where she was because of feminism, and she she feels that there shouldn't be spaces open for women or 
Uh, she was like, no, if you're good at your job, you should get that job. And she refuses to accept that she's this like pioneering lady. But yeah, I think I think everyone's a feminist. They might not just know they are, but at the end of the day, it's equal pay. So do you want some toast? Where's the toast? I forgot that I'd asked for toast. He didn't bring a plate for toast, did he? I remember being very, very excited to get out of school. I definitely felt like I'd outgrown the Lake District and um, I was just so excited to get into, into the world. So um, I didn't get paid for BBC Radio Cumbria. I'd just try and do it in the holidays when I could. So I worked um, in M&S in the food hall. Um, in I which branch? In Carlisle. Good. I got customer service awards quite a few times. I was very pleased with that. It's still on the CV. <laughs> and um, I was a lifeguard. I trained to be a lifeguard, which was amazing because, um, I mean, it paid a lot better than all the other minimum wage jobs that are available to you when you have no experience. Um, so I did that. And I just always where, remember... Where were you a lifeguard? In um, Holtzell, which is where my parents are from, and also the centre of Britain, apparently. So there you go. And uh, so I, I just remember saving, well, what I thought was a lot of money, but it was probably like £50 or £100. And then when I left school, I flew out to Toulouse in the southwest of France, and I just lived there by myself over summer and got a job in a bar. Um, so I worked in some country music festival in an outdoor bar, I think from about 11pm to 6am, and... Um, just like immersed myself in French culture and then... And how old were you then, Ashley? So I, I would have turned 18 in April and left school in July, so yeah, 18. Um, so that's a big thing. A lot of people listening to this will think, wow, somebody's 18 years old, takes themselves off to Toulouse. Obviously you spoke French well. Um, but did, did that feel like a big thing to do at the time? No, I think my parents struggle with it more, but I've always been quite like that. I've kind of just had ideas and done it without really overthinking, which I guess can have like negative effects as well. But looking back, it was quite crazy. Like I just took a flight. I think it was a £30 flight to Blagnac. I, I didn't have any plans with accommodation. I just turned up at a hostel when I got there where I ended up staying for six weeks and um, just really wanted to to work and improve my French. Um, I read French and English literature at university, so I just felt like I wanted to make sure that my French was good. And I, I guess it was that I really felt I needed to escape. I very much felt very trapped at school. And it was it was good, because I feel like by the time I, I got back to, and went to university, I kind of had a bit of life experience. And um, So shout out here for Nottingham University, where yeah. you read English and French. Yeah, so I actually went to King's College London in first year um, and I was a lifeguard at the University of London um, pool which was near my halls in Tavistock Square and um, I just didn't I thought I think I thought I wanted to get to London like being in the Lake District you know London was like exciting and where everything was going on but it was also incredibly expensive um, I remember I was my auntie's cleaner so I'd go uh, every week to her house in Potter's Bar so I'd, get the, I'd walk to King's Cross, get the train up to Potter's Bar, and she'd pay me £30 a week to clean her house. And I remember having that £30 and being like, this is going to last me till next week. And it would be things that all my friends would be getting, like, 
smoked salmon and cream cheese sandwiches, but I'd be like, well, that's £1.30, I need to get the one that's 50p, so I'd go get like the cheaper one, and um, yeah, I just found it a bit of a struggle to have fun, and I ended up transferring to Nottingham, which actually, um, they were very against, because they were trying to argue it was a different course, but I'm quite persuasive when I've got an idea in my head, so um, the difference between Kings and Nottingham was, apart from the price of everything and the fact that Nottingham was on a campus university, so it was much easier to make friends because you'd go out in London and um, also I, I wasn't really a go-out kind of person. I, I used to go to the theatre and go watch Shakespeare plays and didn't meet many other students there on a Friday night. <laughs> so I just wasn't really like... I found it really hard to meet people. So when I transferred to Nottingham, I I'd basically argued that the first year at Nottingham didn't count. So what difference did it make if I'd have missed it? And also King's exams were like three hours closed book, whereas Nottingham were an hour open book. So I was like, I feel like I've really proved that I can succeed. Um, so then I went to Nottingham and I think that's when I really flourished. Like that's when I started to make um, friends. I, hadn't, I didn't really have girlfriends at school because there were so few of us. Um, I love Nottingham so much and I was a student ambassador and that's how I um, made money on the side. And so did you continue with your radio work? Though? Yeah, so I worked for um, the university, what's called URN, and then we went to the, the radio awards, which was very exciting because it was um, hosted and um, the awards were given out by a lot of Radio 1 DJs who are kind of like the rock stars of your youth, aren't yeah, you? And um, I still remember being... I actually still am really cross with Chris Moyles because at the time he was on The Breakfast Show and he was kind of like a hero, especially because he was Northern as well. And I remember him presenting us with the University Radio of the Year Award and he was like, but you, none of you are going to make it on radio because you're all privileged and have been to university. And I remember being like really cross and being like, you don't even know... Like you don't know anything about any of us. And he was just like really snitty, whereas like Joe Wiley and Scott Mills... They were amazing, and I just remember feeling so inspired. And um, actually, I got to spend a day at Broadcasting House. Um, that was through a contact at BBC Radio Cumbria, and I just went to look around and spend the day there. And I met Jeremy Vine, um, who I now know on a professional level. But I remember him saying to me, "Like, why do you want to do this job?" So I, like, I want to be a presenter, and that's what I've always wanted to do. And he was like don't he was like don't do it he was like the higher up you get the more people will want your job and I feel like he must have been having like a bad day or a bad week <laughs> but I remember being like how can you be stressed when you're already successful I don't understand it so you came to the end of your time at university yeah uh, you got your degree yeah what were your plans so I thought I would move to London and get a job so um I moved here and lived with a friend in their family house and applied to jobs on Gumtree and just anything I could find. So then I, my first job, my first proper job, I was business development manager, or maybe I wasn't manager at the beginning, but in a nutshell, my job was to go into advertising and marketing agencies and help them get clients. So if they, for example, were like, we want to work with Coca-Cola, I'd be like, well, you're probably not going to get Coca-Cola because you've had no experience working with drinks brands. So I'm going to find all the startup drinks companies call them up, email them, do whatever I can, get you a meeting. Then when you've worked with them, I'll go to the next tier and the next tier. Um, and I loved it. I loved getting to go into agencies and pretending that I knew what they should be doing with their business. But I also hated the cold calling aspect of it because I feel like I'm quite an 
or very empathetic person and I knew that I was bothering people and I just couldn't get past that so I'm a very good writer so I'd do these amazing emails so I'd like create stories or do whatever I could to get their attention but I remember my boss kept being like you need to make more calls you need to do calls and I remember thinking like what is this fresh hell <laughs> like I just want to go back to university I remember just being like I cannot I can't like hassle people all day and then um because I didn't earn that much money and obviously living costs are so high I also worked on the weekends um, and some of the evenings first of all in a bar and then second of all at Abercrombie and Fitch which um, was like I mean terrible in terms of the ethics of the business but amazing in terms of uh, they just had like this a huge amount of like young people I think there was like over a thousand people working there and you could call in or call out as you wanted because um, a lot of them were models or actors so if they had jobs they could ring up and say I've got an audition I can't come in so it just kind of gave you that freedom to work when you could um, and so then it was whilst I was there that I got approached to do their graduate scheme um, so that was called their manager and training scheme so I left the business management side of things after about a year started working at Abercrombie but then to make money I'd also work the two days a week um, that I had off which was always the week not the weekend joys of working in retail um, but then I, I still did the business development side of it but as a freelance person so I'd have those days where I'd go in my agency that I worked for were called Baby Grand and I loved them they were based in Soho so that was nice because I, I think I just always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I remember being really frustrated working at Abercrombie that I'd come up with all these amazing ideas or at least I thought they were amazing ideas to help improve some of the systems that weren't working but because it was all governed from America they actually didn't want to hear any feedback or they it was just I realized that I felt like I was going you know with all these fresh ideas as a graduate to kind of like make it better but actually they kind of just needed robots and it just so happened that you had a degree and you really didn't need it so um, I remember being like frustrated being like I just want to be an entrepreneur why can't I think of an idea I just want to think of the idea that's going to mean that I can do what I want to do and then um, I got um, approached by Julian Metcalf who um, set up Pret-a-Manger and then Itsu so um, I ended up going for a meeting at Itsu and having never ever worked in a restaurant or the food industry somehow managed to convince them that I'd be the right person to be a general manager of Itsu I remember them I remember them even saying so do you have do you have experience? I said, yeah, lo loads. <laughs> I can't, uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of blagged my way on, onto that. Um, but I feel like you have to fake it until you make it. And um, that was quite a big shift because I think one of the things I was so excited about with Itzy was that I was getting to work for an entrepreneur. Like, finally, rather than being in this big, like, clogwork system that I'd get to put ideas to them. And to be fair, I, I did, but it was such a big culture shock from being in quite a vain uh, career, which was the whole, the whole model of Abercrombie was based on how you looked. And even once I became the um, recruitment and training manager where it would be my job to find graduates, about 80% of that was still based on how you looked. And I remember feeling really cheated, like I gave up my old career <coughs> to become a graduate, but actually it's just because I looked like an Abercrombie model that they wanted me in the first place. So it's, uh, I had my hair net on and I was, putting fish onto rice and you know just learning the ins and outs which look it, it's amazing but I remember like 
there was a lot of times where I'd, I was also going through a breakup at the time and I remember just like with my hairnet and my apron I'd be like, what am I doing with my life? How did I get here? Um, but they're an amazing company, like so many amazing businessmen, like the MD I think came from Pratt and um, just everyone that worked there was like so inspiring and had all these ideas and it was a very highly stressful industry to work in and I remember at times the MD would come in and it'd be just before lunch and already it was so difficult to produce the amount of food we needed to produce with the hours that we had and um, there was always problems like maybe you'd think that the thing with sushi is that it's weather dependent so you'd see on the forecast that it would be raining so you'd be like right we're going to cut the cold food and do more of the like noodles and the hot food and then suddenly the sun would come out and you'd be like we need some salmon and you'd be calling all the London stores and be like who's got salmon um, and he would come in and see that um, so the avocado was meant to be the size of a 10p in the Mackey's and he'd come in and look at one box and it wouldn't be that size and he'd like throw them all out on the floor and I remember being like my food waste is now going to be horrific it was just sort of very stressful and um I loved elements of it, like um, I did. I like loved the like mystery shopping side of it and the customer experience side. Especially one thing I will say about Abercrombie and Fitch is it. I think it was one of like the pioneers of customer experience. It, whether or not you liked the experience you were getting, it was so unique and it had like such a brand identity. So I kind of loved that side of it with Itsu, and um, I got to work quite closely with. Um, the head office to create we did like itsu butterflies so if somebody had like a really positive mystery shop um and they you know named someone as being exceptional then they get presented with like a tiffany itsu butterfly and that was the side of it that i loved and like working with people which was also challenging because a lot of my team i was 25 at the time and um, a lot of my team were you know like in their 30s 40s um they'd been working in the food industry for years and i think there was like an element of like who are you and why are you managing us? And I was also always very open about the fact that I didn't know everything, but I knew how to create a good team and I gave people like the opportunities to train where maybe they'd been overlooked in the past. And when I went on holiday, I kind of, I guess, reset and thought like, this can't be life. Like, I always wanted to be a presenter. Like, how did I kind of, I guess by being ambitious or whatever it was, I just kind of ended up in a place that I didn't feel matched what I was meant to be doing so I got back from the holiday and I spoke to um, my boss at Itsu and I was just really honest I just said like I'm, I'm trying really hard but I just don't think I'm happy and I, I want to quit and I want to do a tv presenting course and it's probably a crazy idea and I had no money like I had no money um but I was like I just feel like I need to do this and now's the time you know when you're 25 you think you're getting old because you're on the wrong side of 20 I was like I'm getting old now (laughs) this is my time to do what I want to be doing and they were amazing they were so nice I think they even paid me an extra month so that when when I quit I still had um, some money for a month which I just think is like amazing and testament to what a brilliant company they are so um I did a tv presenting course at three mills studio I think it's called or somewhere in east london and it was a four-day course and at the end you get like your show reel so it's on you know a terrible green screen where and you had to put together your little script for whatever it was and I mean it was awful like my show reel was horrific but I loved it and I was so confident I was like and also I was so broke I was like I've got a month to make this work so bring it on so I sent it to every 
I think, celebrity production company channel. And I mean, I didn't just aim for like the runners. I was like to the CEO of ITV, like, I'm the best. You, you're making a mistake if you don't employ me. Like it was just, but it was also, I think that desperation that knowing that I needed to find ways to pay my bills. And um, weirdly, so I did the course Monday to Thursday. And then on the Friday, I got invited to go um, be on Maiden Chelsea as like an extra. Um, one of the girls was doing it who was on the course, who's actually still my friend. And I remember thinking like, brilliant, this will put me in front of producers so I can be a presenter. And so I went there and I was like, I'm actually a presenter. If you ever, I knew, I'd researched that Monkey Kingdom um, also at the time were um, in charge of the the host on the red carpet for the BAFTAs, which at the time I think was Fern Cotton doing it. So I was like, oh, I'll be better than Fern. <laughs> and um, anyway, they didn't offer me a presenting job, but they offered me Made in Chelsea. And I remember being quite torn because um, I was quite snobby about reality TV at the time. Um, I didn't watch it, um, but I did feel like it was a kind of like a sign from whatever the universe that I gave them up my job a week ago and by the Friday I'd been offered something on TV. So um, I did it. But I remember being having like huge imposter syndrome and I almost felt like I was back at school again because suddenly I was back with all these posh people and feeling like still the working class girl from the northeast of England. And I remember like no one really talked to me to the point the producers would always be like, almost like babysit me because people were so horrible, apart from Ollie Locke, who um, ended up becoming my boyfriend. But I remember going to him, Ollie, my bag's fake. Because <laughs> I had like a little fake model. And he was like, oh darling, don't worry, all our bags are fake. And he just like really put me at ease because I, I honestly felt like I, I was just suddenly around all these strangers who were already like, it was already like a very famous show and I would just remember feeling like I don't, I really don't belong and nobody was particularly like warm either. And Ollie was amazing and um, it, yeah, I remember it was just quite interesting but I think I always had this like gut instinct that I never wanted to be a reality star and that was always like really important to me and I think in a way that meant that potentially I didn't make the most of the opportunity as much as I could have but equally, it meant that I was still pushing so hard to be a presenter whilst on that show, and I left at the right time. And I think it was an amazing opportunity. It was a scary opportunity to kind of go from working in Itsu to yeah. being on one of the most talked about shows. And I think so with what that... Was, what was that like? What's it like working... I, I expect many people listening to this can have some appreciation of what it might be like uh, to work in ITSU or to work in sales marketing, but not many people will know what it's like to work on a TV show. So just describe what that's like. What's the good and what's the, the not so good? I mean, I think for sure the good was the excitement of being on a show like that and also feeling like I was ma like making it in an industry that I didn't, I really didn't, well, I mean, I kind of, I knew I would make it, but I didn't know how or, so it was, it was super exciting. But it was also hard, I think, because I'm, I'm such a perfectionist in my like craft of anything I do, I want to do it to my best ability. But I'm also like very sensitive, and um, I think it was hard putting your real life out there. And for me, it really was putting my real life out there. Whereas I think maybe some people go in a little bit more protected, or maybe wanting to play a bit of a game. But I kind of 
gave everything, which also meant that I suppose I was much easier to manipulate or it was just a weird thing to be giving so much of your life trying to do your best but then people wouldn't see it on TV for another 12 weeks. So by then, things had moved so quickly, but you still had to pretend that you were still doing... It was just it was incredibly confusing. But to be honest, I think it was also like incredibly exciting because I really believed at that time, and I think from having grown up without money... Obviously, I had like the privilege of going to like a boarding school but I grew up in a household where you really worked hard for your money and money was always this like stress so I really believed that if you became famous you'd become rich and happy and successful because what could you possibly have to worry about and I remember the first time I was recognized I was actually on the train and I remember people going like oh that's Ashley James and I remember thinking like it's beginning and it wasn't even like my ego I just truly believed that if you were famous, you were happy, and that I'd become, I was, I remember thinking like, when's the money gonna roll in? I can't wait to be rich. I can't wait to not have like financial problems anymore. And I guess the downside of it is it doesn't happen like that. And I think especially on a, I think there is a, a huge misconception that reality TV makes a lot of money because I think some people do, and like definitely the main characters or the people at the top, or you know, I think for Love Island, well, how many people do they have on a series, like 50, people go through the into the villa and out of the villa but maybe about five of them max become the success that people aspire to so um, I think it was like such a great opportunity but also like a bit of a, a wake-up call because suddenly you're kind of very well known but you're still not making money and along the side of Maiden Chelsea I was also doing like hostessing work for £10 an hour which was amazing so I you know I'd either be like serving drinks to people at cocktail events or one job I had to do was go to Wembley Stadium who knew like it's obvious now but who knew that every time you go to those big football games and there's a flag on the seats someone's paid to put those flags on the seats and there's a lot of seats there and I was one of those people and then as I became more famous if you like or well known I suddenly couldn't do those jobs because I couldn't be handing out flyers with people recognizing me and also if I was working for brands obviously doing the flyering and they'd kind of cotton on to the fact that I was someone so they'd be wanting to try and take pictures of me doing it so I had to stop that and then there was this like long period where I was really earning like next to no money doing Made in Chelsea especially because you can't really have another job on the side because you have to be available at all times for filming and that you're in everyone presumes that you're kind of like this silver spoon, like super rich. And I really felt the pressure that I had to kind of like pretend that I was those things, but I was broke. Like I moved out of London and lived with a friend in his family house in Surrey. And I remember I used to go to all these events because I'd be like, great, I'll get fed. (laughs) So I'd go to all of these like fancy fashion parties because I got a car to and from Surrey. I got free alcohol, which in like in, at that time I was like great I can still party um and I'd like I'd literally didn't remember taking the canapes putting a few in my handbag being like well this will do for lunch tomorrow <laughs> so yeah it was just a bit of a funny um it was like a funny experience but amazing experience as well like I feel really lucky that I got to be part of like a show like that and I think um knowing what I know now I'd probably like do it a bit differently and maybe um like make more of it or maybe like be a bit more guarded with um, how much I gave of myself but um, it meant that I I got an agent and then I started 
doing lots of presenting and that was really like the dream of what I wanted to do so talk us through all the things that you do now and have done since so whilst I was on Maiden Chelsea I got a um uh, my first was on presenting job which was on a YouTube channel uh, called Fashtag and it was like really exciting because they had like a production company and uh, I just got to interview people and talk about clothes and it was great so in my head I was like I'm becoming a presenter this is great so and then I got um the role of um, doing a clothes show live but also their YouTube channel um, and that was every week so I was doing like a lot of presenting and I had an agent which at the beginning I didn't even know if I'd be able to get an agent so then I guess my my focus wasn't really on Maiden Chelsea because I was kind of doing what I wanted to do and um, I guess it I was it also wasn't like I think my my role there kind of naturally fizzled out because Ollie and I broke up um, I started dating a rugby player who obviously didn't want to do Maiden Chelsea and so it kind of like just came to a natural end but it was I remember being frightened because I was giving up that big platform and I wondered whether maybe I should have like played a game to stay on it or something but it you know I was I was doing the presenting and um it, it was like great but I wouldn't say it was easy like I think for all the amazing things um, and amazing opportunities that being on reality tv offer it also kind of is a hindrance as well because I think it's become the industry's become more kind to reality tv but back then there was very much a these are presenters and these are reality tv stars and it was you know very separate so to have to like earn credibility or to even like fight to get into screen tests and stuff that was um it was always like challenging so whilst I acknowledge the amazing opportunities I also still felt like it was like an uphill battle and so how do you split your time now because you do so many different things um yeah so um I'm still presenting the last like big opportunity to have was I I presented a, sh- a show for Hollyoaks last summer which was like a spin-off show they did for summer so it was online but it was live and it was it was so exciting and then um I recently covered for Richard Arnold who does Good Morning Britain so I was like their showbiz reporter which was like such an amazing opportunity I feel like especially on a a show like that and then um I do a lot of like the daytime topical debate shows um I've been on this week um which was like a cool experience and obviously the Jeremy Vine show um, do a lot of um, like talk radio and, and you travel the world DJing yeah so DJing came about I've always loved music and I did a DJing course I realised when I finished the DJ course I was like well now I need to get people to know that I'm a DJ because no one's just going to give me these opportunities and I think as well it take, you have to with presenting or anything you always have to show people that you are before they accept that you are I convinced my local pub, the North London Tavern, because I couldn't afford deck. So I was like, struck up with what I thought was a really great business deal where I would DJ for them for free and then I'd get free drinks in return. But also it meant, in my head, I was like, well, I get to practice on the decks. So um, I did that. And then someone was in the pub who was looking for a DJ. So they'd be like, oh, have you got business cards? And then I'd print out business cards. And it, then it kind of went from there. And the more I was doing it, the more I was putting up on social media that I was doing it, then the more, then that was when like the fashion brands and all of those events that I was trying to get into were suddenly like, oh, she's a DJ. From there, it's just been amazing, like the opportunities that have come my way. And I would, I would say that at the moment, I'm like 
definitely one of the most like sought after DJs in that area. But also over summer, I uh, DJed at um, Reading Festival, Isle of Wight, a really uh, great camp festival in London called Mighty Hoopla, Citadel. Well, at, at this moment, I think that it would be great to walk you through the Workplace Happiness Survey yeah. and we can measure where in your working <laughs> life you're happy. Question number one, do I feel appropriately rewarded for my work? And I would say, um, I was going to say 10, yes, 10 out of 10. But then I think there is also elements where you're constantly trying to stay relevant or trying to get to, the, you know, trying to be taken seriously. It's hard to get a foot in the door, especially as a female DJ, like trying to have that credibility when it comes to getting employed by like, festivals or the more underground scene but then also in tv i feel like once once you are on it all the time everybody wants you but to try and get to that level so um but of course loads of debates in the bbc at the moment about gender pay yeah uh, i'm feeling fairly paid so i think i say with djing i notice it more to be honest than um the tv work i do but maybe that's because that i'm djing a lot more than i am doing tv but even in the way that, you know, people in clubs or whatever will treat you. So, for example, I did um, I did a gig um, a few weeks ago and I, I took um, my, like, tour manager just to make sure that I was, like, safe, basically. And at the end of the night, some guy was like, love the music. So was it you? And turned to the tour manager. So even though I was the person on the decks the whole night, he presumed because there was a man behind the decks that like, he was obviously there actually doing it. Or I'll have people coming up being like, so uh, can you actually DJ? And I'm like, yes, that's why I'm stood behind the DJ decks, being paid to DJ, whereas I feel like as a male DJ, you don't really get that. You get like girls throwing their bras at you. Um, But that said, the question is, do I feel appropriately rewarded? And I feel so lucky even to be like in a position where I'm earning a living and I'd say like a comfortable, nice living from doing what I want to do so I would I'd say nine so second question am I happy with my working hours well you're asking me after I got in at 2 a.m and had to get up at 7 a.m for this but when you love what you do then it's it's not a chore so can I say 10 for that do I feel recognized when you do something well do you know what I think this is a really interesting one because I think anyone who works in this industry is a people pleaser or goes into this industry one I feel like maybe because I didn't have like the best experience at school or I was a bit bullied or I kind of came having this point to prove and as more and more people get to know you the um the more you want everyone to like you and that's been quite a hard thing to navigate I suppose in terms of like ego but also if you're dependent on the praise of others when you don't get it it can be quite catastrophic so I feel like I have really learned to like check my ego a bit knowing you know that I don't need it I don't need the whole of Twitter to like praise me when I do something well but what I will say is that being your own boss um, and also having agents who are so busy and you're one of many clients that sometimes you feel really happy but there's no one you know you feel really proud of what you've done but there's no one to be like great job because if you're your own boss like can't it's not the same when you look in the mirror and you're like great job so maybe for that i'll say six and, and what about um uh the whole trolling side and 
social media? I mean, because that must have the opposite effect. Rather than being recognised to do something well, you get stick for just doing your job. Yeah, I think I think trolling is a really tricky and really interesting one. And um, funny enough, there's a brilliant documentary on Netflix at the moment um, about Taylor Swift called Miss Americana, and it was so interesting to watch because kind of what I was um, just saying that I think people that go into a kind of performing industry they do just want people to like them and when you build your whole career on being wanting to be liked and also when you you are really liked when that gets taken away from you rightly or wrongly or you start to see negative comments you do feel but but people are meant to like me and I guess everybody has that thing that in their head they're a good person so it's hard to see negative stuff because you're like but I'm a good person or but that like say on with reality TV or something, if it's edited in a certain way, that might be a half truth. And you're like, but that's not, that wasn't even a thing. And you you do have that injustice. And I actually really protect myself with that. Like I don't mind actually on Instagram if it's people commenting on um, my looks necessarily because I'm quite, I've learned to be quite like confident in my body and also confident that a lot of people who say that probably aren't. Victoria's Secret models or you know like with the people with the perceived perfect body it comes from their own unhappiness but what I will say is that when I did Celebrity Big Brother I was very protected in that world because there was no social media we didn't have phones we didn't have any concept of um, what people were saying and um, I when I came out Anne Riddicombe watched it back to back in like two days the whole series whereas I never watched it back because I think I would really struggle to see my experience edited down into a few hours and also if I came across badly um, or you know I didn't even read like tweets I didn't read the news articles and just because I knew that I probably wouldn't a not be able to handle it I couldn't handle anything but I probably wouldn't like it and because I had such an amazing experience in there I kind of just wanted to keep it for myself. So you scored yourself six okay next question do you have enough information to do your job well? Um, do you know what? I think this is a really difficult one and actually I get asked all the time um, from people like, how how can I be a presenter? How can I be a DJ? But really, if there was a manual on how to do it, I'd be doing a lot more of it. And, and I think being in this industry, it's a lot hard work, but also there's an element of luck and chance and like being in the right place at the right time. Like had I not quit my job and done that TV presenting course in that week where there was a girl going in to be an extra on Maiden Chelsea, like, would I have had that possibility? Had You know, I, I would have been working as hard and doing the same things, but I wouldn't have met her, who was potentially the catalyst for me getting such a quick in in the industry. So um, I'd say, no, there probably isn't enough information to do my job well because there isn't, you know, it's not like I can just be like, oh, well, I'll go off and do this course to further my career like the course there's not a course to be like how to become Holly Willoughby <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't exist so I'd say um, and then even in terms of music and DJing I mean so many new tracks are released every week so how, how do you keep on top of that um I think it's more that I love music so it actually doesn't feel you know I don't even need to be like oh I better listen to some new music this week like if you love music then you're naturally going to know it and I think actually the best DJs don't necessarily have to do the most skills and actually sometimes I think that's what makes a bad DJ because they forget that the people that are listening don't care if you can like scratch 
or you know do all the fancy stuff on the decks because actually you can't really dance to scratching they just want to hear Backstreet Boys or whatever the music is and I think that's the art really of Handsome. being a good DJ exactly I have well. I've pulled that one out at some weddings and um, when I do my I'm always roped into DJing at my friend's wedding so that's kind of the only time that I think Hanson's acceptable but in terms of um, enough information I'd say that that would probably be quite low because the information isn't there <laughs> so what would I put for that three or four I'll say four do you feel information is openly shared with you at work so I think there's two ways for you to look at this question I think there's something about uh, your agent and sharing all that's going on with you. And I think you can also think about it probably in the context of the TV work you do. So when you go in, do you feel that they're um, sharing with you information about all that's going on on the show or other shows? Um, I would say I absolutely feel that information is openly shared with me, like in terms of my agents are meticulous in, I know, the time that I should <laughs> clean my teeth the time that I should get in the car, how long the car journey will take, where exactly I'm going to, the number of the person to call when I get there. That's so meticulously planned. But I would also say that's not typical of all agents. So I'm lucky with that. And then in terms of um, TV, I would say 100%. There's always research chats and producers are really good at informing you. And if news topics change, if I'm doing a show like Jeremy Vine Show or Good Morning Britain, if topics change, they let you know. and. The challenge would be would be like DJ gigs because sometimes, um, like the gig I did last night, they sent me this whole list of obscure music that they wanted from like French, Italian, and it was all you know very kind of like eighties music. But then when I got there, they told me they wanted early noughties R and B. So and and I think but again that as a DJ like there's only so much information really people can give you because also if people aren't DJs they act the reason they have a DJ is because they don't really know the vibe of the music so you have to kind of use your initiative there so um i would have said like a 10 because i think it is very meticulous and very controlled but with the djing i'd say i'd bring it down to a seven do you have the resources you need to do your job well um i would say i do have the resources because there's so much that you could do like i could go on a present another presenting course tomorrow if i really wanted to get more comfortable with a teleprompter or i could resources are always available for whatever role you're in it's just that somebody might not be handing it to you but I think if you if you have the motivation and the drive to look around at what's available then yes so I would say 10. Okay. Do you feel empowered to make decisions? I would say that I'm almost too empowered <laughs> to make decisions because I am my own boss and I'm very controlling I think I think it's a positive thing and a negative thing that I'm so meticulous about my image and my my where I want to go and the fact that my business is is me, my brand. So I, I'd say that it's a positive, but it's also an, a negative because, um, yeah, I can I can be empowered to make any decision I want and that can be a great thing or it can be a bad thing. But I'm happy that I'm in that position to be able to do it. So I'm going to put ten for that. Do you feel trusted to make decisions? I... Do you trust yourself to make decisions? I would say that I am trusted to make decisions because I, um, I think people trust that I'm, I work hard and um, that I don't need to be babied. I think um, 
I would say that I'm trusted to make decisions. I would say, like, with my agents, for example, if jobs come in and I feel like it's not right or I feel there's been times where they think it's not right and I've been adamant that it is right, that I, I, I am definitely trusted. So I'd, I'd say that's nine. Do you feel your views are heard at work? <laughs> I would say yes. Sometimes people would wish that my views weren't heard as much, especially <laughs> my parents when I'm on Good Morning Britain. So I'm going to put ten. Um, do you feel the organisation cares for your well-being? And this, so do you care for your own well-being? I would say that yes, I do. Um, especially even like doing the coaching course, I'm learning to look after myself. However, I would say that because I'm such a workaholic, it has been known that I've been hospitalised. I think, um, well, I don't think I had sepsis, um, I think last October and I was still working away yeah. <laughs> and worrying about my deals and trying to make it into work. So I think, um, um, so I'd probably give myself a seven for that because I'm not the best at taking time out. I rarely feel anxious at work. I would um, say that I'm probably the most anxious person. <laughs> I think I run on anxiety, um, but I've learned to like manage it, and I've kind of learned to know that it's kind of part of who I am. And I think actually it's a, a lot of my anxiety that gives me so much drive because I'm constantly overthinking. I think yes, anxiety is bad, and we talk a lot about anxiety now in a negative way but I also think there's an element to it where it kind of keeps me on my toes and makes me that kind of like meticulous businesswoman. So the question is I rarely feel anxious. So I'd give that a one because I'm always anxious (laughs) at work. (laughs) Are you happy with your working environment? I would say I I am happy in terms I think that what I do is amazing. I love like I'm not just saying it because I hear, but I, I love my agents. Like, there's such a like amazing positive energy, and I feel like everybody works hard, and I love that feeling like we're all building and creating something together. But I do think there's also like huge negative sides of being in the industry I'm in because I think when there are, I wouldn't say so few jobs, but it's a very competitive industry, and I think there's a lot of people going for going for the same job, and there's a lot of people who perhaps aren't happy for your success because it might mean that they feel like they're not being successful so I think um so I'd say um I love my job and it, on the whole is like a business in terms of like my work environment that I've created myself and my agents I'm happy but there's the, that background noise in the industry so I'd say six do you feel happy at work and I would say yes I, I think I keep saying this, but I just feel so lucky, like, I, and I love this journey, and I love, like, even all the weird and wonderful jobs that I get. I feel like, it's like, ridiculous as it may seem, and especially when I don't even know if I want children, but I feel like I'm living this, like, amazing career and life that I can't wait for when I'm, like, 80 to be able to, to say to, like, my grandkids, like, you can literally do whatever you want, like, I've been a sushi chef and a this and a that and I've been on Sled Big Brother and all of these things so I'd say I'm very happy so I'm going to give that a 10. Do you feel you do something worthwhile? I think this is a really hard one especially because I've always kind of had that sense that I really want to like do something for the good like how I wanted to do international development originally and I definitely feel like I'm in quite a vacuous role which isn't to say it can't be enjoyable but it's very much like about entertaining people or getting people to dance it doesn't feel like you know one of my friends um, has set up this amazing charity called the worldwide tribe and she goes out and helps refugees and builds wi-fi in 
um, in refugee camps and um, I, I just look at her and think like wow you're doing something like so amazing and making such a difference but I was I also like to spread awareness of that and um, I still really want to go and volunteer um, so I feel like whilst I might not be doing something worthwhile in terms of I feel like I'm not doing something altruistic at the moment I also feel like I have the voice to be able to shed light on people that are and I make a point to try and do that so I'm going to say at the moment four do you feel proud to work for your organisation <laughs> um, do you know what I'm going to actually say yes because my organisation is obviously like yeah. me Ashley James and I do feel proud because I feel like I've um, I've a like built brand that's turned into a career but also I feel like I use my platform for good like um, you know I, I had a, a policy that I wouldn't retouch my images long before it was like a trend to be body positive I would say that I'm proud because I feel like what I do I do with dignity and that I don't I've turned down things that pay well if it doesn't sit right with me or I feel like I put the trust in my like online audience above my pocket so I would say that I'm proud of that so I'm going to go 10. How likely are you to recommend your friends and family to work at your organisation? So I would say my industry and I would say run, <laughs> do something secure. If, my, if I have children and they say that they want to be a presenter, I, I would probably be quite scared just because I'm not scared, I would just be supportive. But I do feel like there is like a competitive or underworld where you can get quite lost and I think even from the trolling side of things it would be very scary for me to put want to put my friends or family into the firing line of having people criticise I would support anybody that would want to do it and say that there's like amazing highs but I would I probably wouldn't be like you, you should quit your job and do reality TV <laughs> I feel like it's definitely not for everyone so um, I would say three do you feel that you were treated with respect and I'd say this is an interesting one again because I'd say within um, the people that I work with day to day, like my agent or my stylist or um, my PR, you know, all the people that keep my brand ticking, so to speak, I'd say that yes, absolutely, I have respect um, and also I respect myself. Um, but there's also that element that I work in like a very male dominated industry in terms of like being a DJ. So do people always respect me? obviously not like I mentioned that you know sometimes I go to clubs or even sometimes when male DJs take over they presume that I they'll be like oh let me set it up for you I'm like I, don't, I know how to do I know what this machine is like I can do it no 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 I'll help you and you know there's that element that they presume and I think that's um I think that's for anyone in any industry if you're blonde and like dresses or whatever it is there's like a a judgment that you can't you can't also be intelligent or good at your craft and I feel like that's something again why I'd say that I'm a feminist because I feel like we have to knock down a lot more walls to prove our worth whereas I feel like a man is automatically respected usually so I'm going to say five because I think there's yes I'm respected by myself and my team but there's still a lot of fighting to be done for women um do you enjoy your job yes absolutely obviously I've talked about like the negative sides of it but I think in I think I wouldn't change it um, I would say yes I enjoy my job so I'm going to say 10. Do you feel you have a good relationship with your line manager? 
So um, I'm going to say my agents. I'd say that we have a really good... <laughs> I'm going to say, and not just because he sat opposite me, that I have a really good um, relationship with my agents. And I'm going to say 10. Do you feel you're being developed? I would say absolutely yes. I'm always um, developing myself. I think it, even just in terms of DJing, you're having to like constantly develop, otherwise you won't get booked. Like, there's no new music. Um, I'm always reading like self-help books, or I should say self-development books, or I'm studying to be a coach, or studying interiors because I want to create a location house for my home so I feel I think for sure that I'm constantly being developed whether that's through external sources or from my own willpower so I'm going to say 10. So this is the last of the questions right um, and the last one is what three things would you change around your working life to make you happier? Um, Ooh, it's quite a tricky one to answer isn't it so I think the first thing that comes to mind would be I would um, like to change the way the media operates um, the press the tabloids in particular could be kinder especially towards women and I also think it would be way more inspiring especially for, for women and for girls to see rather than to think that somebody got their success through dating someone to see that they got their success through hard work uh, maybe this will be my second one so I would like to change the perception that being on television makes you rich and what I would also say is as I've hung out with you know some of the like A-listers or household names in this country or um, from the states a lot of them aren't happy and so, you know, you meet these people thinking they're going to be what you see on TV or, you know, you know and it's like, it's like saying that, there's a saying, isn't there, that like, comedians are some of the most miserable people in real life because it's all an act, because it's like this desperate desire to be famous. So I would say also be careful who you idolise because they might not be what you think. And your last my last thing make you to improve work. workplace happiness would be equal opportunity. Kitchen. Equal opportunities. Great. So you've now answered all the questions. Now what we do is we go through filter questions. And we do this so that we can compare you to people who are like you. Okay. Okay, so you've finished. So now... Almost instantaneously, you get your result. Yeah. You get your happiness score. So, so go to results. 76% happy. So that's pretty good. It's very good. So how does that compare to your industry and globally? So I'm 76%. The industry is 65%. And globally, it's 65%. So I would say that I am a ray of sunshine <laughs> above average, which is nice. You are. And if we scroll down, what we do is we break the questions into the six different areas. So reward and recognition, uh, information sharing, empowerment, well-being, instilling pride, and then job satisfaction. And in that, actually, there's a, there's a range. Uh, so your highest at 97% is responsibility. Your second highest is about job satisfaction, that's uh, 88%. Your third highest is reward and recognition, 83%. Information sharing is at 70 And then you've got two where you score below the average. Yeah. They are well-being, so looking after yourself. Yeah. And this is all about your anxiety every day. Yeah. And about um, uh, 
uh, not pushing yourself too hard and working with sepsis or going to work with a kidney infection. And the other one is about instilling pride and that's recommending where you would work to others. Brilliant. Well, Ashley James, thank you very much. Uh, it's been fantastic to hear your story, uh, how you grew up as a little girl uh, on a farm, uh, how you worked your way into um, uh, broadcasting, and then how you've developed your career. So thank you very much for your thank time. Thank you, it's been fascinating. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.